The glory days are when there's been a fresh snow and you're out on these beautiful rolling trails and there's glints of sunlight coming through the trees and these gorgeous ponderosa pines are sagging with snow. If you're reverent of the environment that you're in out there, there are incredible species that you can come across. Welcome to Experiences You Should Have, your how-to guide for amazing experiences. I'm your host, Gail Manasco, and today we are getting into cross-country skiing, or also known as Nordic skiing. And here in 2020, Nordic skiing or cross-country skiing has seen a, a giant rise. And I am one of the people that joined the sport this year. I saw how golf and and biking or, or cycling really gained popularity this year. And I had a really good hunch that Nordic skiing would see the same trends. So I went out and bought gear in October from Sunnyside Sports uh, here in Bend, Oregon, just anticipating that everyone would be buying a cross-country ski gear this year. And I was right. Uh, I got in before the crowds and I got my setup and I had no idea how to do it. Uh, I wanted to try classic cross-country skiing and started going out to Virginia Meisner Snow Park about 13 miles from the center of Bend, Oregon. And I realized what an amazing sport this is. It's so serene and amazing. However, I've only been doing it for about six weeks. And I didn't feel like I could serve this experience justice. Uh, So I have brought on Alice Pierce uh, to interview her about cross-country skiing at Virginia Meisner Snow Park outside of Bend, Oregon. However, if you have great Nordic skiing available to you where you live, keep on listening because this is not just about Meisner. It is about uh, cross-country skiing and skate skiing um, and general Nordic skiing. So Alice Pierce, uh, she is currently living in Bend, Oregon, and her passion for skiing was born from the gnarled foothills of the Adirondacks in the early 1970s and continues today. From her start and just down the road at her one rope tow community area, Indian Hill, to mom and pop ski areas all the way to the Rockies, Nordic Alpine and Telemark skiing have been the thread that tied her life experiences together. A writer, teacher, and entrepreneur, she now revels in the sweet reward of getting to chase her own two teen boys on the trails. So without further ado, uh, let's welcome Alice Pierce to the podcast. Gosh, welcome Alice to the show. This is so exciting. Thanks for having me. I mean, I feel pretty privileged to speak for the Nordic community. 
for sure. Absolutely. Uh so I mean, Nordic skiing is on trend this year. Everybody is doing <laughs> it. The New York Times is talking about it. Uh, yep. <laughs> <laughs> we feel it. It's crazy. Yeah. So why do you think Nordic skiing is blowing up this year? Well, it makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, there were some other activities that, happen in the spring and summer that basically require um, pretty simple equipment that you can acquire or none at all. Um, and then it's really about being in the open air. There's inherent social distancing and it just allows people to get outside and feel like they had some freedom when we all felt locked up. I mean, in Bend, we were fortunate to just have access to nature, even through the worst of the lockdowns and COVID. And uh, you can just go out and feel like you're still doing your part for social distancing, and yet you're getting exercise, which is so great for mental health, um, as well as nature. I mean, Nordic skiing itself is just such a great experience in terms of quote, communing with nature and um, especially in the winter when people can feel really um, cabin feverish. It's just a way to remind yourself that nature's still out there and you can warm up and feel like you got a great workout and laugh with friends in your family. Yeah, it's a great sport. Yeah, my gosh. Um, so I am I'm new to the sport. I'm about six weeks in. <laughs> like, like you and half the country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, mean, I, I tried skate skiing once um, or twice years ago, and I was sore for about six weeks. And I'm like, well, this is for the birds. And yeah. then, it's, but a, then- it's a common response to skate skiing. If you haven't done it before, it's quite foreign and frustrating. <laughs> My gosh, I think I just every single muscle was crying for help. But <laughs> this year, I decided just to buy some classic Nordic skis and and go out. And my mm-hmm. gosh, it's just been the most lovely thing. I love Meisner. I love it so much. It's a really special place. I mean, it's been really heartening and yet overwhelming to see how popular it's become, but it's just got this special um, energy to it. I tend to use that word a lot, but there's just some magical places and views and the way the trails are laid out or they're just, they just open you up. That's how I feel. And you can just pause anywhere out there and just hear the wind uh, hear the birds. Uh, it's an intimate experience at Meisner, I guess is how I would describe it. Mm, absolutely. Now, how long have you been a Nordic skiing at Meisner? Uh, well, at Meisner, gosh, I lived in the Columbia River Gorge for about 14 years. Um, and so I skied up at an area near there, but Bend was um, a stone's throw, so we would come down for a little bit more snow and sun down this way. And I remember uh, Meisner, before it was called Meisner, was the Langloff 
Tumalo Langloff uh, Ski Club. And I just remember stumbling across it before there was grooming and it was just for classic and touring. And even then I just fell in love with it. Mm. I mean, I went to college in Eugene, Oregon. So I was coming over to Bend when it was still undiscovered and Mount Bachelor was a private entity and the Nordic Lodge up there was the only show in town pretty much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Man, but this year, every, everybody's at Meisner this year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's definitely, um, I'm part of the Meisner Nordic Board, and we've been discussing the inevitable crowding that we knew would happen this year with COVID because Mount Bachelor had to limit their parking, which um, usually we share uh, Nordic community resources with the Mount Bachelor Nordic Center, which is also a lovely, lovely community and lots of great groom trails up there. But um, with the limited parking they have up there, we knew that we would have a lot of newcomers to skiing, as well as a lot of Nordic skiers who needed better access. So yeah, every weekend and the holidays right now, it is bumper to bumper, literally. <laughs> uh, you feel like you're in New York City or LA waiting for a parking spot. Um <laughs> But amazingly, when you're out there, um, it still doesn't feel that crowded. I mean, there's definitely the main corridor where most um, beginner and intermediate skiers access the Meisner Shelter. But if you go off on these side trails, you're still getting a really quiet experience. And um, yeah, it's beautiful. Wow. Well, how about for our listeners who who maybe are home or maybe don't have access to these trails? Can you describe the experience of Nordic skiing at Meisner? Well, oh my gosh. It depends on the day. Some days it can be blustery and cold <laughs> and uh, you're just fighting the elements. It can be rainy and sleety because of the elevation. But of course... Um, the glory days are when there's been a fresh snow and you're out on these beautiful rolling trails and there's glints of sunlight coming through the trees and these gorgeous ponderosa pines are sagging with snow. And, you know, there's even opportunities if you're quiet and kind of in balance with nature or like some early mornings I've rounded a corner on one of my favorite trails and I came around this curve and there's a fox sitting right in the middle of the trail and glanced back at me and I thought, oh my gosh, I was so lucky to see that. And then I kept going down the trail and I came around another corner and there he or she was again, just kind of trotting down the trail, just beautiful fur and I just had this kind of incredible, I don't know, four minutes or so, just in complete silence, this fox and I use it, sharing the trail together. And then I came around the final curve before my long hill climb out. And there he went, just kind of weightlessly dropped over the snowbank. And it was like I'd not seen him at all. He was just gone. It was amazing. And I, I think that's still possible. Um, if you're reverent of 
the environment that you're in out there, there are incredible species that you can still come across. So. Wow. That just sounds absolutely thrilling and amazing. And, and that's why I'm just so still drawn to Nordic skiing. I mean, every winter I think, okay, I must be getting tired of this. This is my 48th year (laughs) skiing. And I'm just amazed every year I get out on the trail and I just come alive again. And I think a memory like that, it just embodies what I feel the true Nord experience is about. And it's just this synergy of embracing the natural beauty of winter and the woods while moving your body and breathing hard. And, um, you know, that all stems from when I started skiing, they're just grooming didn't exist. Maybe there would be a snowmobile that would drag this heavy weighted, uh, kind of handmade, uh, track setter. But other than that, you would just, I would head out in my backwoods and just explore. And I think there's still a lot of that magic that you can access with Nordic even today. Oh, that is just simply well said, I think. <laughs> you know, more people are discovering the magic. They're 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 getting out, they've got their skis, they're they're ready to be out in nature, especially after being hunkered down at home. Mm-hmm. We we work from home. Um and we've we've really been social distancing and have declined um, any gatherings in town. Yes. And we all do. And, you know, that brings up a great point. Um, the other favorite piece of Nordic skiing is the community itself. I mean, it's just such a social sport and, you know, my partner, um, kind of begrudgingly at first said he would take up skiing because it's of course my first love probably in terms of sports and, he he was a lot like you when he was first learning skate skiing. He was kind of frustrated and, you know, depending on the conditions, um, you know, for him, it was a lot of work. And we would pause every once in a while. He's like, what is it with the people out here? Everybody smiles. He's like, this is the happiest group of people. And, <laughs> and it's true. You know, everybody's just so happy to be out there. And um, I just feel like Nordic skiing is... Uh, just an inclusive, um, warm community. And we just enjoy welcoming people. And I I think that's the beauty of um, the shelters. For example, you know, COVID's a little different this year in that Mm -hmm. we haven't stocked wood uh, for fires, but usually the huts have a warm fire going. And it's just an experience for people to warm up, but also just to meet people from all walks of life and just have these memorable conversations and then off you go. It's pretty special. Um, see, I've, I've been ignoring the shelters because um, when I come across the Meisner shelter, there's just a lot of people around and, yeah. and so I, I just bypass it and, and go for a trail that that nobody is on, but I look forward to the day (laughs) where we can all, yes, all commune together. It's true. And, you know, truth be told, the Meisner shelter is the most easily accessed shelter for 
beginners to experts. And so it becomes kind of this crossroads. And there are definitely a lot of people up there right now. So you make a great point to just kind of disperse on the trails and, you know, maybe just do a drive by for the incredible view of the cascades from there. And, um, you know, and every year we normally have this event called Luminaria and we have this wonderful volunteer every year who designs a snow dragon that, um, it's a snow sculpture that many volunteers lift shovels and the snow, snow cats, uh, push snow into the area so that they make this giant kind of play structure, uh, sculpture. Yeah. It's a snow sculpture and it takes a different form every year. And that is right off of the Meisner shelter. It's also a really special part of the community that I think we are still doing the snow dragon because snow dragons are also a great way to socially distance. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about some logistics. Um, okay. First off, where where is Meisner uh, Snow Park? Well, I think one of the reasons it does get so crowded is it's very easily accessed from Bend, Oregon. And there's one main, uh, pretty much highway, the Cascade Lakes Highway that goes up to Bachelor. And Meisner, gosh, maybe 25 minutes from town is the Meisner Snow Park. And the Swampy Lakes Snow Park are uh, accessed right off the road. And they have a loop parking system. And the groom trails come off of Swampy Lakes and um, the Meisner Snow Park. So you pretty much park grab your skis, off you go. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Now, what is the the cost to park there? Um, So this is the parking lots are not maintained by the Nordic Club, but um, the Department of Transportation and the Forest Service um, manages the snow park um, fees. So you do have to pay either a daily fee for a snow park pass, um, for winter recreational use, or you can buy a seasonal or the annual pass, which is, you know, saves you a lot of money. So mm-hmm. that's the only fee. And then we are a donation based organization. And this year the community has just come out in force to support us because all of our grooming operations and um, lodging, all of our maintenance um, aside from the parking is covered by donations and sponsors. So we are really fortunate to have such a supportive community. Now I saw a donation box with a, a QR code um, mm-hmm. to donate for the grooming. Um, is there also a place you can just go online um, like on yep. your site to donate? Yeah. So we have a website, uh, Meisner, nordic.org and yeah there's a donation button uh process on there that you can follow um and i believe yeah we don't have it on our facebook page i think it's just those two ways and good old-fashioned cash or check is great (laughs) and we try to be with the times with that qr code um yeah yeah now about how many miles of 
trails are there around Meisner? Gosh, I am the worst. We were just having a discussion about um, the map not too long ago because there are not distances on a lot of them. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Steve Rohde, who's the president, will probably cringe because I actually don't know the total <laughs> kilometers, but I do know that a really popular um just a popular workout route is going all the way out to the cinder pit and back and that's 10 miles. So, and interestingly, a lot of the signage out there is in miles, not kilometers, but um, typically Nordic areas are measured by kilometers. So it's an an important note. (laughs) Okay. Now I have a map of the Meisner ski trail. uh, Yeah. I'm looking at it right now. and I, I think it's about 50 K. I, that's that's what I would I would yeah. put out there, and we can always go back and you know. And this check is them one out. of the, the best snow parks in in Central Oregon for for Nordic skiing because the amount of groomed trails there, right? Yeah, um, you know, the Mount Bachelor Nordic Center definitely. Um, I think we're about the same in terms of our distances. So, um, but we are adding here and there a little bit. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I would say we offer a lot of diversity of trails too. Um, And the beauty of Meisner is that the staging area is flat and from there you can access the beginner trails. So um, I just feel like the access is really good and the diversity of terrain. Okay, so I'm looking for the cinder pit on the map. Where, <laughs> where's the cinder pit? Because I've right. seen signs pointing to the cinder pit, but I, it is way out there. And you know, even now, I still am like, gosh, I forget how far out here it is. And there's a lot of climbing involved, mm-hmm. uh, but it's the furthest point out. So you would go out the main corridor called Tangent, and then it really it becomes the cinder pit trail after you follow the paintbrush trail mm-hmm. out quite a ways. Yeah. And then once you pass um, the shooting star shelter loop, which is a new loop this year um, mm-hmm. for those who want to test their metal with hill climbing and descent um, after that is the cinder pit. Okay. I see it here yeah. near the guy, yeah, near the shooting star shelter. Now there's, there's a coloring system here. We've got uh, green for easiest, blue for more difficult, black for most difficult and purple for ungroomed. Mm-hmm. Um, I accidentally got on an ungroomed trail and that was <laughs> quite an experience. Um, With skate skis or classics? Classic. I don't <laughs> recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely, there's uh classic skis for groom trails. And then there's, of course, the touring skis, right. which are designed for going off road for sure. Yeah. And so just curious, what makes something easiest versus more difficult versus most difficult? Like on a, on alpine skiing, you might, it might be the, the pitch or moguls, um, right. but how, how is a blue different from a green versus a black on yeah, Nordic trails? I would say it's definitely has to do with um, the degree of climbing that you're doing, which also means you're going to sometimes the descent can be a little 
spicy as it were, because there's uh, maybe a turn at the bottom. So you need to have decent um, speed control skills and steering skills to get around a corner. But um, yeah, so it's really a combination of um, how steep the climb is, you know, how technical it might be, even if it's a shorter hill, like Gentian um, has some really fun, steep climbs and they're sustained you know, so it's like a stair step kind of thing. And then there's, you know, there's a decent descent and a right angle turn when you get to the bottom. So <laughs> you got to be prepared. Yeah, I've, uh, I've been trying to learn how to stop, which is a good thing to learn, right? <laughs> yes. And it can be more challenging if, if you're used to edges, if you're transitioning off of alpine skis, uh, you come with some skills, but I think you learn pretty quickly if you rely too heavily on edges versus some other skill sets like weight distribution and steering and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are the top skills you need for Nordic skiing? Yeah, I would say um, if I, I've taught skiing for a long time. And as an instructor, I always start by saying, if you can walk, you can ski. Um that as a start, because it really does, um, it does cue off of your natural stride. So, um, but when you translate that to a gliding surface, things get a little more interesting. So I would say balance is a really important, um, skill to bring to it. And, um, probably a little bit of coordination. Um, you know, that's a, everybody has it inside of them, but I think it can get a little lost in all the gear. Um, and you should come with, you know, just basic skills to create power by pushing off of one ski onto the next ski, but really it doesn't take that much to get started. It just depends where you want to take it. And then, um, there are some other skills like steering and core strength and that and timing and those kind of skills come into play a little bit more. Yeah. So when I was a, a little girl, my, my mom had a Nordic track mm -hmm. and, and it just didn't really occur to me that that was classic cross country skiing Right? We couldn't believe such a thing existed when you were a Nordic skier back then. It's like, what? I can't believe they would make a machine that would simulate what we do because it just seems like not something a lot of people would do. Yeah. So that actually was an early uh, training tool for some of us who were racing back then. Uh, wow. You can adjust the resistance. Yep. We had one for our ski team. And um, so we would, you know, we would hop on it every once in a while. I mean, most of our training was just dry land training where you'd run with ski poles and wow, yeah, push yourself till you threw up that sort of stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I went out six weeks ago and I'm like, oh, it's like the Nordic track. Yeah, and, and I'm like, this is all there was some muscle memory still in there. Yeah, for, yeah, for classic skiing. Yeah, I mean, I think if you let your body follow its natural, um gosh, how would I say it? Just your natural stance when you're walking, mm -hmm. you'll notice that your arms swing, you know, 
on opposing sides from your legs and all this stuff you don't think about until you break it down. Um, but yeah, it, the muscle memory is in there even before you start skiing. Yeah. Now you've mentioned classic and skate, uh, but can you explain to our listeners the difference in between skate skiing and classic skiing? Yeah, sure. So classic skiing is what one would think of when somebody mentions cross-country skiing. That's the original style. Um, you can take it backcountry touring without tracks, or you'll see it on the groom trails in the tracks. Um, so by using kind of playing, cueing off of that natural walking stride we're talking about, you there's grip on the bottom of the skis, so it allows, allows you to do what's called kicking, which is you're stepping off of one ski so that you can propel yourself forward and glide forward on the next ski. So the cool thing about that is you take into an elite level, it's an extremely, it can, it changes into an extremely rigorous technique where the skier just looks kind of explosive and they're basically, um, it almost looks like hopping, you know, or even jumping when they're maximizing the glide and moving in a really powerful rhythm. So then that moved into, um, I was kind of around like some of our other Meisner board members, um, skate skiing kind of came in the late seventies, early eighties. Um, and it's at least in the States, it's often associated with the, uh, first American cross country skier. His name was Bill Koch and he was just a hero in the Nordic community because he was the first one to make the winter Olympics podium for Nordic skiing. And one of the reasons he was memorable is racing was always classic style. And then one day he had seen, I forget the Scandinavian's name who had preceded him with this, but he stepped one ski out of the track in kind of a V angle and started pushing off, which of course increases your speed. And so he, there were no rules. So he started this uh, diagonal skate. And then within a year or two that turned into out of the tracks, um, before they were all glide, these skis, you, um, skiers would just push off on both skis. So it was a lot like ice skating. Um, not really, but you know, cause it wasn't just edging, but, um, that's how it began. And so the skate skiing uses glide only. So there's no kick. It's just, um, moving from a gliding ski to a gliding ski. And over time it's transformed into several different techniques that you can use V1, V2, V2 alternate. And these are all different, um, different techniques that you would use depending on the terrain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned for a skill that you would need uh, good balance. Mm -hmm. And what about for uh, people out there um, who who may not have a great balance or limited mobility? Uh, are there options for them uh, to go cross-country skiing? Um, there are, you know, there are lots of programs out there that, can give access um, to skiers who can't even walk. Like Oregon Adaptive Sports is a fabulous program here in Central Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, and they 
offer free Nordic lessons um, to those who want to explore that. And they even have uh, what are called sit skis. Mm -hmm. So um, skiers who can use their upper body but uh, are paraplegic are able to get out and enjoy the trails in the same way. And um, it's a fabulous way to do that. And I think there's, you know, Special Olympics even um, offers programs locally where, you know, they just provide equipment and support for anyone to get out there. And like I said, pretty much it just requires walking um, and you can still access some of that experience. Beautiful. Thank you. And and have you seen any sit skis at Meisner or is that predominantly at Mount Bachelor? Um, you know, I have not seen them out in a while. Um, it's been such a strange year. I would say, you know, Oregon Adaptive Sports can use their equipment anywhere. They're not necessarily tied to Mount Bachelor. So um, I have not seen those out lately. So that might be worth checking out. I don't All know. Right. Yeah. So what type of gear do you need to go uh, cross-country skiing or skate skiing? Yeah, um, they can be about the same. I think if you're uh, just more a beginner intermediate and you're moving at a slightly slower pace, you might want um, to wear a slightly heavier layers, but just keep in mind it's kind of sound winter clothing that you would wear. You don't want to wear cotton for a base layer. If you get sweaty that, you know, you can really chill your body very quickly if you stop or have to, or if you get stuck out somewhere. Um, so basically thermal layers, uh, layers are key because you can take them off and you can put them back on. If it's windy, of course you want some kind of wind layer, a breathability factor would be great for that. Um, you want warm gloves, but not bulky. You just want to avoid bulk because it can get very uncomfortable to be out on the trail and taking off, uh, taking off your pole straps and getting them back on can be really problematic if you have thick gloves on, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, where, where are places that you can rent cross-country skis or buy skis um, and bend? Yeah, there's several organizations. Again, COVID has changed the landscape a lot. Um, Sunnyside Sports has been around since the 70s, and they're just known as a wonderful community resource for renting skis and selling skis and also local knowledge. And, you know, there are some other businesses that do something very similar now. Pine Mountain Sports is just a wonderful hub. And I believe they are still renting this season despite COVID. And then there's also Web Skis, which um, they offer uh, kind of um, intermediate expert, I would say, intermediate advanced equipment, but mm -hmm. also a great shop in general. Great resource. Great. Absolutely great. Now, as far as etiquette on the trail, <laughs> and we have, have a lot been, of people oh, coming no, there. And no. It's a blessing know. and a curse that, uh, <laughs> that so many people are coming to Nordic skiing because it is this influx of people who 
not only maybe maybe new to Nordic skiing, but maybe new to some of these um, more wilderness type experiences. So, um, yeah, there's especially when there's grooming, there are some kind of time honored codes of conduct on the trails when it comes to cross country skiing. So. For example, we're seeing this year, especially in the holiday season, there's always a little bit of this, but um, for example, no walking on the trails. It's, um, I just recommend if it seems too challenging, maybe ask somebody so you take an easier trail where you don't feel like you have to take your skis off. Um, that's a common thing. <clears throat> so definitely they're not for hiking, even though they're really inviting that way. So, you know, just kind of if you do want to explore, but don't want to be in your skis, definitely stay off to the side. Um, there's also similar to biking etiquette regarding who has the right of way and counterintuitively, we, um, had a discussion about this recently that downhill skiers actually have the right of way. So as you're climbing, um, it's good etiquette to step to the side and if you're a larger group, to really make sure you're off to one side um, so that other people can pass. And then if the last thing that I, um, in terms of trail etiquette itself, is just if there's a skier who's moving faster behind you, it's up to them to just kind of give you a heads up they're coming by. But the um, etiquette is to step to the side so that skier can pass. Yeah. And I would say, you know, something that comes to mind, just a last point, is we are in these really precious watersheds that are home to a lot of some, some are endangered species that the Forest Service is um, managing our trail system for, actually, to make sure some of these sensitive areas are protected. Um, so the other kind of wilderness ethic that goes along with that is that you know, noise itself is, can be kind of like noise pollution. So just kind of being aware of uh, loud voices that can scare off animals and then also packing it in and packing it out so that these watersheds are protected and um, no Christmas tree cutting, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. That just kind of, all of that just compromises um, the natural environment. So. Mm -hmm. Now, what about the trails? And uh, there's just one set of tracks um, that mm -hmm. maybe on the right or the left. Um, is it just anybody can use the the tracks? Either side, you mean, or if there's only one? Yeah, I guess if there's only one set of tracks. Um, yeah, it's that... very similar to what I was saying. So, if you are overtaking a skier. Um, that in that regard, you would probably step out of the tracks, kind of pull past them, and then step back into the tracks. If you're yeah. going uphill, um, this might be a little outdated, but the original premise was if um, if somebody's going up a hill and there's someone in front, you would just say track, for example, and the person in front of you would step to the side. But you know, really, it's just about being aware and sensitive and working it out. But if there are two tracks, you just want to think about it like bike lanes. So mm -hmm. you would go out on the right and return on the right. So not, you know, you don't want to 
um, be going downhill on a left side track, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, what if uh, you have a a small child or, or baby? Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you can you bring them to uh, Miser? No, absolutely not. This is not a family activity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's the other reason that Nordic skiing is so popular because it's family inclusive. And you can get your, you know, infant out there the next, you know, the next day if you want. There are all kinds of really cross-country friendly packs. Um, I use that with my second son. And you can just make sure they're bundled up in a nice down bunting and um, just carry them on your back. Of course, I don't recommend that if you're a newer skier. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, the earlier you get your children on a sliding surface, the more natural it becomes for them. So I encourage as soon as your child can walk, get them on skis. And that's kind of our family, the family that I come from, we're all skiers. And, you know, that's kind of the rite of passage is as soon as your kids can walk, get them on some skis. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And then once... Yeah, I'm trying to think. Really, there are also some great models out there um, where they're basically, uh, I, I don't know if I'm supposed to name brands or not, but fine. yeah, so like there's the Chariot that I love, which is a really lightweight system. Um, it's like a stroller on skis, as you know, and it's yeah. designed for cold weather. It's got a great cover on it. You can really bundle your kids up. Um, and then they have a ski attachment and then there's a waist harness that's, uh, attached to some poles. So you can pull your child behind you. And again, it kind of depends on your skill level because depending on the weight of your child, it can get, it can get pretty heavy, pretty fast and you can move pretty slow, but it's, it's just a lovely way to get your kids out there and lots of times also get them a nap because it's very rhythmical and they'll sleep. You know, it's really a really sweet thing about skiing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I just, I just love that. I've just seen all sorts of families up there and I see some hardcore skate skiers just going back and forth with their kids in tow. And Oh yeah. Yeah. It's really been great for me too. I have um, two boys and you know, the early uh, years of skiing, are pretty thankless. You've got to keep your eye on the long game for sure. Just, Mm -hmm. I used to joke pretty much just take M&Ms and hot chocolate and hope for, (laughs) you know, hope for 15 minutes on skis and then lots of snow play. But if you put in the time, you know, now I have two teen boys and we're out there skate skiing. We're actually going to go later today. And my older son, all of a sudden he's faster than I am and um, they're just naturals, you know, and it is, it's just, it's such a great feeling to pass that along to your family. It's great. Do they offer lessons at Meisner? No, um, because of our relationship with the forest service, it's really not a commercial operation. Mm -hmm. So um, we do have, Actually, this is a great time to share on January 10th, for example, um, there's a nonprofit called XC Oregon, and they are lovely and sponsor a learn to ski 
day every year. And it's not for a fee, of course. So you can show up with your skis and they have a lot of local experts who offer you tips and take you out. And that's the extent of our lessons out there. But Mount Bachelor offers a really robust set of ski lessons and even multi-week groups um, that are really popular. So, Very cool. Uh, now, just curious, when is the best time to ski Meisner and how do you look up conditions? Thanks. Um, so we have a Facebook page for Meisner Nordic itself and our groomers are very tech savvy. So they daily um, or whenever there are grooming days, which right now is Mondays are the only day we don't groom. So yeah, sometime in the morning, they'll do a post that includes what the conditions are like, how, you know, how much snow we've gotten, and then also what trails they've groomed, which is a fabulous tool. And then in addition, uh, we now have what's called the Meisner Nordic Conditions page. And that's not our official page. That's for the community where it's just kind of crowdsourcing what the conditions are like, at, even at different times of the day. So um, that's a great resource for knowing what the conditions are like, because to your point about when to go, it really depends. Um, it can be really blustery and snowy in the morning when or cloudy and then the sun will come out in the afternoon and just depends you know what your tastes are if you want um, fresh snow and fresh groomers you want to go in the morning um, if it's snowed then you might find the groom trails have a couple of inches of fluffy powder on the top which some people love um, yeah so it's just a matter of watching the weather and i'd say the conditions page is really improved access to what's happening up there at any given time. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And as far as your favorite route or trails, uh, you mentioned, um, the, the cinder pit loop. Um, but, but what's also just a favorite loop if, if you're going to go out, uh, this afternoon per se. Yeah. So I personally love the trails that kind of offer a more intimate experience. The um, tangent corridor is very popular. It's the double wide trail that gives um, most beginner intermediates access to the easy trails. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a great system right there called the mushroom trails that a lot of us eagerly await being groomed every year. They're, they just kind of meander through the forest um, and it connects up with another trail called mistletoe. And I just love those little trails. They're just little connector trails. Um, and there's also down low a trail called Current Way that just gets a lot of sunlight. Um, it's gentle terrain, but it just kind of meanders through the meadow. And that's another favorite. And it goes right off of the main uh, lodge staging area. Very fun. I have just been discovering. I feel like I see something new on the map every time I go. Yes, we have some great volunteers and board members who are just kind of always looking for a trail opportunity. But, you know, we really do balance it with um, impact. So 
we're very careful about adding new trails and, um, but it is fun. You know, it just opens up just a little more variety and a way to connect up loops your favorite way. So it's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, as, as far as the culture of Nordic skiers, um, <laughs> what would you, how would you describe the community of Nordic skiers? They're just a warm, friendly bunch. Um, and they're just community minded in general. I just find a lot of them are active in their other communities. But a big part of it, and maybe this has come across, is this reverence for nature. And before it was a really popular sport, we were kind of viewed as a kooky little culture. You know, we have affectionate names associated with us like Nordo nerds and granolas. And it's <laughs> definitely a reason for that. We, uh, we tend to be highly conscientious of our lifestyles and our impact on nature. And specifically, you know, I, I, because this is all reliant on the big white stuff, which is snow, um, we try to be really conscientious of our carbon footprints um, and try to educate the public about that as well. And, um, you know, our board president, for example, has an electric vehicle and we have a lot of bikers and we try to carpool pre and post COVID. Mm -hmm. um, it's true. We eat healthy, but I think we also enjoy a little nip of whiskey when it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, now I started um, skiing up in Meisner in uh, November, hmm. um, but how late does the season go? Boy, that really depends. Our elevation, um, sometimes we might be done mid-spring. Other times, you know, if the sun comes out, uh, it can very quickly do some damage to our snowpack. Other times, it'll go out into April and May. Um, we do have a permit that limits our grooming to a certain point. So then it's every man or woman for him or herself. But yeah, this year, again, we're definitely working with the Forest Service. So our permit officially, I think it's December 1st is when our permit starts. So any snow that comes before that, um, we do some preseason packing of the trails. So I think um, some people were pleasantly surprised this year when we were kind of protecting snowpack and it seemed like grooming. So um, yeah, just depends on when the snow falls, but the grooming itself doesn't start until December 1st. Oh, wow. Great. Yeah. I mean, you have just been a wealth of information. Oh, I talk a lot. I do love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, do you have any other tips uh, for anybody considering going to, to Meisner Snow Park? Not so much. I feel like we covered a lot of it. I think the big takeaway is since now many have discovered the beauty and the bliss of breathing hard while enjoying the winter weather, my hope is that all these new skiers gain that special appreciation for all the factors that go into creating all these ideal Nordic experiences. You know, we kind of talked about that, but just passing along the good vibes and taking care of these Nordic trails is kind of a precious resource and thinking of it that way. Yeah. Beautiful. Well said. Well, 
truly uh, thank you for coming on the show well thanks for having me it's really a treat and hopefully i didn't bore everybody with all my nordic enthusiasm <laughs> i don't think so i am so excited and uh we'll be up there as soon as i can all right we'll see you on the trails all right thank you mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening to Experiences You Should Have. If you're listening on an iPhone, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. And please tell a neighbor, tell a friend from a distance about this podcast. We are a growing indie podcast and word of mouth is a great way for us to grow And we put a lot of time and energy into making this podcast and just ask that you tell a friend, ask them to subscribe, uh, share your favorite episode. And if you are thinking about future travel, maybe later in 2021 or 2022, um, now might be a good time to start thinking about what you're going to put on the calendar. And if you need some inspiration for some adventure trips, uh, look back at some past episodes, including uh, Swing with Great White Sharks. Um, Many people think South Africa is the best place to do that, but there's even a better place. So go check that episode out uh, to hear about Great White Sharks with Sarah Mady. And the Blackwater Diving Kona episode is a fantastic one. Also, the Blackwater Drift Diving off of Florida is so much fun and very interesting. Um, and then some other favorites to to check out are Climb Mount Rainier. Another one that I've been really interested to try is to dive sulfra, dive in between tectonic plates. And I'm not sure when the festivals are going to come back, but if you are thinking about future festivals and when they might come back, the Ziggit Festival and the Rainbow Serpent Festival are great episodes to listen to. And Brighton Bush I is just a dear place to my heart. Uh, they are closed due to the wildfires that happened. Uh, they, they lost a few of the structures there at Brighton Bush. But one day Brighton Bush will come back and go go check out the Brighton Bush episode, especially if you're if you're down with nudity. And and if Finally, uh, a few more that I'd like to throw out there is the Peking to Paris Motor Rally. If you want to learn about what it takes to take a classic car um, across many countries, that is a fantastic episode. And hiking to have a Supai Falls, uh, which is closed, but one day it will open. So now's the time to start thinking about some of those bucket list destinations and how to make them happen. We break down costs, permits, when to go. Uh, I'd love to address accessibility um, and and maybe if there's an adaptive way of, of doing some of the experiences. And I don't know, just peruse through some past episodes. This podcast has been going on for 
uh, three plus years and we tried to stay consistent. Um, so, so go be dreaming about future travel one day and until our next adventure. Thanks for joining me.